Well, I said earlier that uh, Kevin persuaded me through pancakes. That's actually not true. Um, reality is, is uh, I took some time off this fall. Just from any kind of ministry, we moved our home from Hopkins. We're in the process of building a house and our five children. So that takes some time and started a new class uh, at Bethel Seminary, Christian Social Ethics, that I haven't taught before. And so it's subjects like, you know, anything from abortion to in vitro fertilization to war and social justice and all these things. I don't know anything about all this stuff. So <laughs> it's been, a, um, yeah, one of those uh, kind of falls. So it's been good. And, and part of what I love, though, is just in my relationship with Kevin is it's just that it's a relationship. It's a journey of friendship. And we continue to intersect and, and walk out the journey together. And so as it makes sense, and I love what Kevin is about, he's just about following the sense of what God is up to and doing his best to come around and underneath that. So uh, here I am again. I will be here again next month for sure. And I have to admit that I often whine about the kinds of topics that Kevin gives me. And sure enough, next month I get to speak on the God of war. You know, I'm so dialed into the spirit. I don't know if you know about this, me, but I'm so dialed into the spirit that I can kind of prophetically look ahead and see that I'm feeling sick that weekend. So I might miss that one. (laughs) No, but I have to admit that uh, the subject that Kevin gave me this morning in this ongoing series on the armor of God about the helmet of salvation is indeed something that is right in the wheelhouse of my passion and and something that even for the last 15 years of my own Christian journey, uh, this idea of salvation is something that I've been exploring. And so I'm grateful for that. And it finally, for me and my relationship with Kevin, puts to bed all doubt that I had. He He absolutely, I know for certain now, is a Christian by his love. <laughs> I told him I tweak him a little bit this morning, so I can't can't help it. Uh, a couple of things before we get started in this sermon. Um, one, I do need to say out loud that this topic of the helmet of salvation, as I begin to dive into this, I recognize quite quickly that it's a topic that's too expansive for just one sermon. And so I don't have a, a nice three-point, neatly alliterated sermon with, you know, gripping stories and an epic conclusion and all of that. I have more than anything else, just hopefully the starting point of a conversation for you and your own journey. And for me, continuing to walk out this journey, that as we explore these concepts of salvation, that, that maybe they're more expansive for us than we ever could have hoped to believe. That they start at at just some talking points to wonder about what God might be up to and what the wonder of this good news is in the journey of our faith. So just recognize we can't get all of there today. The last thing that I'll ask you to just tuck away in in your mind's eye and in your heart, uh, we'll refer to it again right at the end. But I just want to say out loud now that this is not the first time that the helmet of salvation has been mentioned in the biblical text. And in fact, it's mentioned in Isaiah 59. And the wearer of that helmet of salvation is God himself. And there's something that God does and God is about in putting on this helmet and going to war on behalf of his children and his people and the redemption and the mending of all things. So we'll refer back to that towards the end. We have a ways to go to get there and to explore some of this. And so as we get started, I'd like to just pray As we begin, recognize that it's sacred ground that we are all on here, 
uh, and that there's words of life and death that all happen in our journeys. And I just ask that life would come. Okay, let's pray. God, and the, in the, the wonderful and complex tapestry of the journey in which we are all on now gathered in this space, I ask that your eternal seed of reality will continue to once again blossom in this place, that the hearts and minds of all of us in here can turn and lift our eyes yet again to you in all of this. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so if you've heard me speak before, I sort of get stuck in this sort of mode, but it's kind of how I approach life in general. So here it is for you in the sense that I often start a sermon with a question. And it's a question that either I have had or am having in the moment. And I find that when I ask that question, it tends to lead me to more questions and more discovery and more unpacking as you just begin to wonder. And so the question that I have as we start out this morning is simply this. What does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? What does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? Well, I don't know. Uh, even as I ask that question, and maybe for you it's even kind of a somewhat confusing notion, or maybe you haven't thought about it yet, but, but maybe for some of you who are thinking, gosh, you know, my salvation is my assurance of heaven when I die. I mean, it's something that I already have, right? I've been saved. I have salvation. I know where my destiny is and it's all secure. I have all of that. Why would I need to put on a helmet of that? And now they got me thinking here, Peter. Now maybe I'm kind of concerned because is it possible that I can take off the helmet? And if I take what would I then lose my salvation? Right. That's always one of our main questions of it. Can I lose my salvation? Or better yet, is putting on the helm, uh, helmet of salvation, this like idea, I know where I'm going. And so I'm putting it on for all the world to see. And, you know, where I'm headed, you might not be headed there, but I got it. And I'm. So what does it mean to put on the helmet of salvation? What I want to suggest to you is even if those questions are, they're just creating some wondering in you now, is those questions may relate to the fact that perhaps the notion of salvation in the biblical sense is, though includes assurance of heaven when we die, is perhaps a bit more expansive than that, perhaps a bit more exciting than that. Perhaps the good news of salvation is even better than we would have ever dared hope to believe. And so to point at that, what I want to do to get started is I want to just give you four scenarios plucked from real life and just walk those out with me and kind of wonder about maybe where we're headed. So scenario number one, let's pretend for a minute there's a man named Bob. Now, Bob's a believer, loves Jesus, assurance of heaven when he dies, but every time Bob walks into a room, he feels this sort of intense need to maybe say some half-truths, possibly, you know, even outright lies. He might be at a party or with friends or with his wife or whatever it is. And, and he says these things kind of to spin the room in his favor so that people will think highly of him. And, and Bob has this sort of intense need to, to gain some measure of power or prestige, fair amount of charisma. People are drawn to him. But when you hang out with Bob and you kind of look him in the eyes, his eyes are a little bit skittish. He's got something going on inside that gives rise to this stuff. And here's the thing. Bob knows that about himself. 
And it drives him nuts. He hates when he's walking in this room and that he, he wants to be real. And no matter how hard he tries, he can't. He finds he's just trying to spin people's perception of himself, trying to manage people's ideas about himself. And it's driving him crazy. It's a weight on his soul. There's even a bit of misery in that. So here's the question. Does Bob need to be saved? Would the helmet of salvation possibly help here? All right, scenario number two. Let's take Susie and Dave. <laughs> My names are so utterly lacking in creativity. I apologize for that. But let's take Susie and Dave. Again, full believers, assurance of heaven when they die, but they're struggling in their marriage. I know none of this will resonate. Nothing big has ever happened between them. But they found in the daily rigors of the years of real life that they've slowly drawn apart a bit. And there's getting to be sort of this subterranean, subsurface, underlying tension that when poked or, or prodded maybe just a little bit, it manifests itself in a sharp word or an irritated response or some kind of reflection of where is the love that we once had. So let me ask you something. Do Susie and Dave need to be saved? Would putting on the helmet of salvation matter for them? Okay, scenario number three. This one's a, a bit dicier. But let's take Larry this time. Larry's a believer. Full assurance of heaven. But Larry, like many of us, has grown up in an over-sexualized culture of American life. And like most good Christian men, young and old, Larry has struggled with pornography. Larry hates the images that go through his brain. Larry hates even more the treadmill cycle of failure, confession, vowing to get better, followed by failure, confession, vowing to get better, followed by failure, confession, hoping get better. Let me ask you this. Does Larry need to be saved? Could there be good news for Larry? Finally, and we can keep going on, let's take Melissa. Believer, full assurance of heaven when she dies, but Melissa has been under a great deal of financial and emotional stress over the last 15 years of her life. Never knew all this would be coming, but here it is, and it's taking its toll upon her. Melissa used to be the kind of person who could just simply take in the wonder of life around her. Take in the simple joys and incredibility ability to just play. Open hands, open hearts. Melissa, now anxiety-ridden, barely able to live in the present moment, goes to try to just be in life, finds her spirit and her breath, even hyperventilating, doesn't know where to turn. There's a misery. So let me ask you something. Does Melissa need to be saved? Would putting on the helmet of salvation matter here? Is there good news for these people? So if this is confusing as I paint these scenarios, maybe your mind is going to this place of, well, so Peter, what are you trying to suggest by putting on this helmet of salvation? 
Are you suggesting that, you know, in the middle of the turmoil and the misery and the distortions of our hearts and our minds, that that really what we need to do, Peter, is put on the helmet and remember that our eternal destiny is secure, that we're going to heaven then. And that'll put somehow all of life's present circumstances into perspective. You know, we're just passing through after all. Just got to get to the other side. And so it's some sort of almost victory of the, through the denial of present circumstances. And I get that. So there is the assurance of heaven peace that in times helps. But is there maybe more? Is there good news for Larry and Susie and Dave and Melissa and me and you? Well, if you are confused, uh, like me, in terms of first getting into this kind of work, a number of years ago, it could just be, I'm going to at least submit for your consideration, it could just be that our concept of salvation, though including heaven when we die, has not appropriated or is more expansive than that. It's not appropriated the wonder of what's all there, that there's more to it than maybe just making sure at some point in our journey we've said a prayer of confession of some kind or maybe been baptized or some ritual in which we've engaged so now we're saved and we're headed to heaven. Maybe there's more. In fact, I'm going to suggest that for you this morning, that maybe there's more. That the good news really is better than we ever could have hoped for or ever dared to dream. And so for Melissa and Bob and Larry and Susie and Dave and me and you, maybe there's good news. Well, as I start to try to unpack some more of this for you, I'm mindful that some of it might sound somewhat new. And for some, maybe not. But I'm mindful, too, you know, that sometimes some new things, it's hard to process this. I remember a story I was teaching in a class one Sunday morning, and uh, we were exploring different concepts of salvation and the fullness of what's there. And after we were done outlining all these different kinds of concepts, I had this dear woman come up to me, bless her heart. She was walking up a little bit nervous about the whole thing and, and kind of fidgety and, and even sort of looking around as if maybe sort of, you know, what she was about to ask might prompt the spiritual KGB to come out and take her away, right? Nervous to say anything. She comes up and she says, so Peter, is this stuff part of the emergent church? And I looked at her. Now you're all dying to know, right? I looked at her and I said, I don't know. <laughs> and now I'm kind of freaked out myself, right? I'm now looking for the Gestapo as well. And I'm wondering, you know, what's this all about? And so I went home and like what you should always do, I, I highly recommend it. I went to that bastion of all certain knowledge on the Internet, Wikipedia, always trustworthy, Right? And I started looking the stuff up because I didn't know. I'd barely even heard of these sorts of things. And I was looking up emergent church and emerging church and emergency church and emery board and emancipation, pro I, whatever I could find. Because I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe I was sleeping one night and, and some people came and they like baptized me into some secret sect and I really didn't know. Just trying to teach what was in the Bible and explore maybe there's more and that the good news really is better than we could have dared to hope. Do you ever wonder what Paul meant in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2? And he said these kind of crazy and for some of us terrifying words. He said this, work out your what? Salvation in fear and in trembling. Current time, current space, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
for God is at work in you. And this, this might be terrifying because we have this notion of, you know, some of these theological phrases we chuck around, like justification by faith, meaning we only get into heaven for sure, not because of works and all that. And then we see this passage, work out your salvation, and some of us might be like, sola fide, sola fide, you know, which is Latin for faith alone, you know, we just want to make sure. Kind of, I'm guessing none of you have ever done that. Maybe Paul's talking about something different related to salvation here. Maybe there's different notions of the word. Maybe there's good news bigger than just assurance of heaven. And as we try to unpack some of this, theologians through the ages have referred to something that uh, is described as the now, but the not yet tension in which we as believers are doing our journey of life. And what they're trying to get at when they talk about these things is that the fullness of God's kingdom is real and it's present and it's available. It's not yet done. We're not at the end. There's the not yet dimension of it, but it's very available in current time and space, all of what's there. And so think maybe in terms, and this helps me a little bit, of like a wedding cake. And for those of you that have walked through getting married or know other people who have, you know that the wedding cake itself is not there in its fullness until the marriage supper, right? So we get this language, the marriage supper. But before that wedding cake comes, what do we do? We go and we taste of it. And it's the real cake. It's not the fullness of the cake. It's not, it's not yet, but it is now, and it's right there. And so theologians have talked over the years about the fact that salvation has this sort of past and present and future dimension to it. Yes, get into heaven, but there's something more. Has anyone ever heard the biblical phrase, I've been saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved? You ever heard that kind of thing? At least people anchor that in the text, that idea kind of gets after it. Theologians will try to maybe talk about the past, present, and future dimensions of salvation as justification, sanctification, glorification, and they kind of put it in a nice, neat, tidy package, which I'm not sure it's always as neat and tidy as all that, but theologians have got to get something in a package so they can argue about it, right? Okay, that's just a tweak of mine. One of my best friends is a theologian. I love to tweak him whenever I can. But there's that sense of it, and the point is there's this past, present, and future dimension. I remember when I was studying at Bethel Seminary back in the late 1990s, and I was studying under a theologian, it was systematic theology, and we would explore all these different topics. And we came to the, the bracket or the section in class where it's time to study salvation. And he was this kind of guy who liked to tweak all of us, right? So he came in with a little twinkle in his eye. And before he said anything else about salvation, he said this, and I've told this story before, but he said these words, I'm not saved. And we're all like, what? I mean, you know, because we're all budding ministers who are going to save the world, right? And and we're like, we're being taught by a pagan theologian. What's going on? And, you know, we'll come down here right now, young man. We'll get you saved. We are trained in the arts of this kind of thing. And then he proceeded to just lay out in beautiful fashion, start to finish, the wonder of salvation in the biblical text in all of its past and present and ongoing and dynamic and very real and, yes, future dimensions. He told stories of the Old Testament salvations all over the place in the Noah's Ark story or when the Israelites are standing at the shores of the Red Sea and there is no way created for them and the chariots of evil are bearing down again to take them captive. See the pictures? Take them captive and God just goes, and salvation has come. David and Goliath, Hezekiah 
and the Assyrians, he went into the New Testament. It's a beautiful passage. It's one of my favorites. When Jesus emerges from his wilderness journey that he was on in Luke chapter, uh, chapters 3 and 4, and he emerges out of the wilderness and he comes to the synagogue uh, of his hometown, Nazareth. His first sermon he has ever given there, and he takes the scroll from the prophet Isaiah and reads this famous messianic passage about how the promise of salvation in this sense of it is going to come. And what's great about this passage is that Jesus's name, Yeshua, literally means salvation. And Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation. And now he's reading this passage about salvation. So salvation is reading from the scroll of salvation. That salvation is coming. And he reads that. And then he sits down. And all the eyes of the synagogue are upon him. And what does he say to them as he looks up? First thing. He says, today, right now, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Indicating maybe there's something about salvation. That yes, though it includes heaven when we die, maybe there's something more. Maybe the good news is bitter, bigger and better than that. For me, in my mind, for you and yours, I know for some of us this might be, again, new kind of thinking. Reducing salvation to heaven, however, is a bit unique to evangelicalism in the last 75 years, where we focused only on that piece of it, you know, making sure people do some kind of ritual to get them saved. But even as we've engaged in this in our culture so often, there have been those who have wondered about that, theologians of substance that have wondered what we might be then missing, that though that is true, maybe we are missing some things. A.W. Tozer, have you heard of him? He was, he was one. And he writes this about what he was noticing as our culture was tipping towards just focusing only on this piece of it. He says this, I must be frank in my feeling that a notable heresy, you know, he says things like only Tozer can, a notable heresy has come into being throughout our evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as savior in the sense of getting into heaven when we die. I think the following is a fair statement of what I was taught in my early Christianity. Come to Jesus don't have to change anything, don't have to give up anything, alter anything, surrender anything, give back anything, just come and believe in him as Savior. Then he says the fact that we basically now hear this everywhere does not make it right. Okay? Dallas Willard, tremendous author of The Last Generation, just passed away last year, writes this about this dynamic. If we are Christians simply by believing Jesus died for our sins, and that really all we need is have our sins forgiven, make sure we go to heaven when we die, then why do some people keep insisting that something more than this is desirable? You're all saved. Why in the world would you come here in the morning? We got it. To slip on my helmet each week, right? There's absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his early followers taught. See, we know this stuff when we start thinking about it. That suggests you can decide just to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and have nothing more to do with him. This heresy has created the impression that it's quite reasonable to be a, quote, <laughs> this, a vampire Christian. 
What in effect says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. Now just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. So we go on again for weeks just talking about this, but let me kind of start distilling it down for you a little bit. Biblical salvation, though, including heaven when we die. Maybe there's more. Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe, again, for Melissa and Bob and me and you as we stand at the red seas of our own hearts and our minds. And evil's bearing down yet again. And the pattern with which I've engaged and engaged and engaged in my thinking. Just even the way I see the world, I can't even be free to see the world the right way. Maybe there's hope. Maybe there's good news. Like really good news. Maybe there's gospel. You know, uh, you, you see this sort of thinking in the word salvation itself in terms of what it actually means in the Greek language. It's a beautiful word. The Greek uh, root of it is the Greek word sozo. And it literally means to deliver, protect, and then I love these words with it too, heal and preserve and to make whole. Anybody else need to be made whole? You know, I'm good, like probably many of you, at sort of putting out my Christian face for the public to see, and Jesus saves and he does, and he's good and he does, and I sing, but does anybody else carry any kind of misery? in the interior world that needs to be made whole? Could the good news be bigger than just heaven when we die? Had a chance to really walk through so much of this over the last 10 to 15 years, as I said, in my own journey. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that the good news really is this good. That there really is a real and active and living and dynamic God at work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for he's at work in you, even right now, to will and to act according to his good purpose. We're designed for a certain kind of life. We're designed to live a certain kind of way. And yes, sin has distorted and broken and all of that. Would salvation be possible, even those moments, so I can see again, not just managing my behavior always, but actually seeing the world in a different kind of way? Is that possible? Is there really is, is there is there news that's really that good? Some of our famous verses in Scripture even point to this. We've lost the sense of that in them as we've used them to try to get people only into heaven when they die. But anybody ever heard of the real famous verse, John three sixteen? Kind of a big one, right? It's the one that the guy with the clown hair always wears, you know, where he goes to the football game with the placard and he holds it behind the goalpost. So every time somebody kicks an extra point and you pray for many, many points that game, right? And uh, so that people can all see John 3.16 and make sure they go into heaven when they, okay, maybe that's part of it. But let me just break down this verse for you just a little bit in the wonder of the good news. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What if it was true that everlasting life, that phrase in this passage, is not a synonym for heaven? What if it was true that in the original language, it's not a synonym for heaven? What if that word life in the Greek language is this lovely little word that's called zoe? And from the Greek language, when you bring it into the English, it literally means this, the essential an ethical kind of life that God himself enjoys. The essential and ethical kind of life which God himself enjoys. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. 
So whoever believes in him will not perish, but will begin to have the essential and ethical kind of life of God himself. Fruits of that kind of stuff. Things like love begin to be in my heart and joy and peace maybe. And maybe I actually become patient, not, actually, not just only acting patient, but maybe a new life starts coming in my heart that gives rise to the way that I see that then manifests itself in my behavior. Self-control, I don't think about it. Faithfulness, kindness, gentleness. Perish in this passage does not mean headed for hell. It means uh, a useless kind of existence. And belief in this famous passage is not assent uh, to a theological fact. It means yielding to, surrendering to, fully giving oneself up for. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So whoever counts on him, yields to him every day, surrenders into him, will not live a futile and failing existence marked by the bondage to sin, but will begin to have the essential and ethical kind of life of God himself for which we are meant. It's beautiful. That's the invitation. Heaven? Yes. Yes. More? Yes. It's part of why Jesus says then later. John, John uses this word life in his gospel some 32 times. Only a couple of times in that could it even refer at all to something in heaven. You familiar with that passage of Jesus coming and saying, I've come that you would have life and have it what? Abundantly. A heaven? Abundantly? I get lots of heaven! Lots of it! No, I've come that you would have my kind of life. I see that you're broken and distorted and hurting and lost in the misery of sin. I have come to break that power so that my kind of life overflows and fills and restores and heals and mends. It just overflows everything. That's why I've come. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy that stuff. But I've come to break it all free. In Romans 6.23, in that second passage that often uh, we, so, we so use to convince people to somehow do some sort of ritual and, and they get into heaven, and I get that, but uh, that, again, is a lovely passage of Scripture. It's for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift is everlasting life. And life, again, in that passage is the same Zoe. Paul uses the same thing that John is using. The free gift available in Jesus is his kind of life. And even, I haven't said anything about that word everlasting, but what's so cool about that word is there's this sense of that it's indestructible. It's not timeless, it's that it's indestructible. Which is why John says things that in him there is life. And this life is the light of all humankind, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It's indestructible. Once you find that salvation in the deep places of the soul, in the darkness with which we carry, it's indestructible. And death in that passage of Romans 6.23 is not a synonym for hell. I've often read that passage of, the wages of sin is you're headed to hell, but the free gift is you get heaven. The word death in that passage is the Greek word thanatos. And it literally means a misery of the soul that arises from sin. And it begins in this life and continues to perpetuate itself throughout all eternity. The results of our sin, the results of our distortions, the results of our missing the mark is a misery of the soul. Anybody relate to that? Anybody ever been kept up at night with the weight of a darkness you don't even hardly know what to do with? And the souls in misery. I have. Because I'm human. 
but the free gift that's available. The gospel really is that good news. So for Bob and Melissa and Larry and Susie and Dave and me and you, there is really good news. And I love the voice of children. I just need to say I have five of them at home and I make them sit down in the living room and I preach to them each week. <laughs> and they just mock me. So it's, it's, uh, it's fun. But our children need to grow up in that kind of ethos, don't they? That there's really something more than just, yeah, you got that in the future, so just kind of struggle through for your 87 years. Maybe there's more. And maybe it's much more important than we could ever believe that there's more. I'll say more about that in a second. But I love this word salvation. Again, just the fullness of it in the sense that A.B. Simpson, who was the, the head of the Christian Missionary Alliance, said this, the gospel of full salvation... Broadening our view of salvation will mean wholeness and health, healing and holiness for the whole person. Full salvation is not only being saved from sin and hell, but also experience wholeness in the many dimensions of life. So as we get ready to sort of process some of this and, and wonder about this. I know that it's maybe a bigger concept than just what can be packaged in a sermon. Um, I will invite you to go ahead and come over to Kevin's house afterwards, after service today. We'll hang out, keep chatting about it. He's bought some steaks for the entire church out of his own pocket, and it's, again, part of his journey into love. <laughs> well, I can't wait till he gets to listen to that part. Andrew, we're doing second service for him. That's well, a lovely invitation, but there are a few things I need to say about this that are sobering. It's a very real part of the deal. Because the question comes up as maybe you're processing and you're thinking, yeah, I can get my head around that a bit, that salvation in its current time and space, and maybe in the distortions of my own soul, that, that could be good news, that, that it's even possible that I could be set free, that I could see the world differently that I would have the capacity to love in ways that I never thought possible. That I could have the capacity to see the women and men of this world, not through the lens of some sort of sexual object to be consumed, but I could actually see them. I could actually see them through the wonder of how God made them. Not just trying to control my behavior, not just trying to put internet blockers on the computer. I get all of that, but maybe there's more. Maybe I could see differently. For salvation has read from the scroll of salvation. That salvation has come. But make no mistake, if you want to engage in this kind of thing, and I'm sure many, many of you have, you know it's not a simple five-step process where you do these five things, can be reduced down into a book that we can write and sell on a shelf about our interactions with God, as if working with God is kind of like a business arrangement, right? We do X, God does Y, Z happens, we're good to go. Maybe it's a relationship. And maybe there's a very real and dynamic God at work. I was talking with somebody after the first service, and he was processing some of this and thinking, you know, he said, Peter, my, my, my mindset of who God is, he's, he's on some sort of throne up there in heaven, and that's good. And I'm kind of left to myself to just try to read the biblical text, understand what it's saying, and then go and obey that. And God's up there, and he's kind of keeping a little ledger you know, doing well, not so well. I had a good week. I had a great week this week. I didn't have, I had a great, I didn't have a great, ah, you know, and then we just kind of wind ourselves up in that way. Maybe, maybe God's real. And maybe he's active. Maybe he's dynamically present 
in all the moments of our lives. Maybe Paul meant it when he said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, not being scared, but recognize the sobering reality of an awesome, ever-available God who's always at work. And here's what he'll do. He will work into you to will and to act, says Paul, according to his good purpose. That actually from the inside out, the way I was designed way back in the Garden of Delight, the Garden of Eden, all of the wonder that's there is possible that it's being set right, even right now. But it may not just be a five-step process. So in light of that piece of it, I will not try to sell you a bill of goods this morning that if you just have the right kind of faith, if you can say the right things, if you can believe in the right way, certainly all of this will change. If there's, has there ever been anybody in here who has ever like prayed and said, God, I don't want this anymore. I really don't. And then you wake up the next day and you're all in it again, right? And then, I don't want this anymore. And then, well, I, was, I really meant it this time. And God, where are you? And all of these things, I get that. I do. But in that place, I just want to encourage you that it's quite possible that God is not first and foremost interested in our exterior behavior. Maybe he's looking for a contrite heart that he can mend. And if your heart's anything like mine, it takes a lot of work to mend. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be healed. But that new life starts to come in that. But again, make no mistake, sometimes that takes us into a wilderness. And sometimes we can't see our next steps. And sometimes we wonder and the wait in these scary places of I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't even know how to see. I don't know how to understand. The wilderness in the biblical text is a sacred and holy place. It's always referencing this idea that in the wilderness, stuff dies so new life can come. That's the message of the biblical wilderness. When you're wandering in it, not sure, don't know where to go, it's always about something dying so new life can come. If you're like me, sometimes that wilderness has been, oh, I don't know, years. But then there are those moments, right, where all of a sudden maybe something grows, some threshold has been crossed, some Jordan River has been passed over, and the new life has come. And you can look back and say, thank you for all the steps of the past. I remember those. They make sense to me now. Because the text says that for a seed to take new life, it needs to die first. And the good news in that is God is present there, even when we don't know it. So maybe if you're feeling as if you're in a wilderness right now, it might not be because you've done something wrong. It might actually be you're walking towards something right. We get in our minds, I must have screwed up somewhere. That's why I'm in this wilderness. It could possibly be that new life is waiting to be birthed. It's the message of the text. So the last part about this, the last thing that I'll say, going way back to the beginning. I think it's interesting that um, God is described as having the helmet of salvation. He puts it on. And that in and of itself, that very fact alone should tell us more about the helmet of salvation, that it's not just some get into heaven because God is not putting it on so he can get into his own heaven, right? <gasps> you know, I just, you know, God did something so he got himself saved. God is putting on the helmet of salvation 
because as that is part of who he is, he just goes to war on behalf of his people. And into the darkness, he brings things like love and light and justice and mercy and all of these things for the healing and the mending of the world. Not in its fullness yet, it's coming. But he puts on that helmet. And the crazy thing about that is that he invites us to do the same. To put on the helmet of salvation. And I want to walk through some of this with you this morning because it doesn't make sense to put on the helmet of salvation in the way that God is inviting us to be a part of the mending of the world. If we, don't understand, if we think salvation is just about some assurance of heaven, though it is that, it's more than that. But to put on the helmet is to be someone who Paul would describe as you yourselves are ambassadors of Christ Jesus. Ambassadors of reconciliation as though Jesus himself is making his appeal through you. To put on the helmet of salvation, bring it with you. I can't say that it is easy, and in a little bit, uh, the worship team is going to come back, uh, Melody, on this, and so I don't have uh, five nice little steps for you to do this. All I can say is there's this uh, wonderful thing in the text that happens right away in the Garden of Eden. And when we first see sin come into this world, what, uh, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide, right? And God comes walking through and he strolls through the garden and God says these words to them, where are you? Now think about that for a minute. Did God actually not know where they were? As if they found some just crazy great place behind a pear tree in the garden that God knew nothing about? He's like, dang it, you won the game of hide and seek finally. Now, when he's saying, where are you? He's saying, where's the one that I created? Where's the one that was meant to be open and unashamed, naked and fully, fully vulnerable to me, not hiding oneself, not locked in the distortion? Where are you? I want to see you. And then what do we see in the text over and over and over again? Is we see people like Abraham say these words, in the Hebrew, it's Hanene, and it literally just means, here I am. And Abraham goes to God and says, here I am. And Moses says, Hanene, here I am. And Isaiah says, Hanene, here I am. And it said over and over and over again, I will open myself up to the fullness of who you are yet again today, God. That will be how I will work out my salvation with you. I will be open. Do as Mary said. Let it be done unto me as you have said. I don't have five steps for you. I have an invitation to the wonderful and painful journey of openness with a God who is really at work mending the world. So the last piece of this is that to be a witness in the text, and we want to be witnesses, right? And for me to be a witness was I had to be ready to be able to tell some story about a God-man who came and died and rose again, and thus witnessing for my faith, the witness in the New Testament text, to be a witness for Jesus just simply means this. You have a life that testifies to the power and worth of following Jesus. That's it. You may not even have to tell a story. But if God's real, dynamically active, partnering with us, working out the salvation, crazy stuff starts to happen. I'm not saying it's easy, 
And it might be 10 years in the wilderness. But that life starts coming. And people look and they say, something about you. And then I can say, yeah. My life testifies to the worth and effect of following Jesus. I don't need to try to argue you into the kingdom. What I can do is just say, go give him a shot. Why don't you talk to him? It may not be easy. Your life may not suddenly become better. But the real, indestructible kind of life that shines in any kind of darkness and cannot be defeated will be part of who you are. And I will testify to that. I will testify to that until I breathe my last. So my encouragement to you is to work out your salvation if you're in trouble. For a delightful God is really at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So that let's stand and sing together. We'll do